rejoiced this morning in the singing of the hymns and in the reading of the scripture and in the fellowship we had together and in the worship that we had with the choir. That was excellent. That was superb. Thank you so much, choir, for ministering to us today. And uh, my heart is now prepared to bring the word, uh, having uh, worshipped so well with you this morning. So thank you for that opportunity. Also, I just want to thank you for the privilege that I have to be here. Uh, It is, uh, I love this church. I love the design of this church. I love the acoustics. I love this pulpit. This is a great place to bring the word. And then also for the kind greeting that you have uh, given me in coming in. This is a very warm and a very, very friendly church. Uh, I would like to also this morning acknowledge my wife, Anna, who has uh, joined us for worship this morning and who has put up with me for 28 years. And so uh, she she's heard me preach plenty. And so I love her very much. And I'm glad she's, she's here with us this morning. If I may, let me begin by opening the... Uh, the time of the proclamation of the word uh, in a word of prayer. And let's beseech God uh, for every good and perfect gift is from above. And so let's pray to him and ask him to bless us now as the word is proclaimed. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ, your only son. Lord, we thank you for the Bible, which is perfect and true and altogether right. Lord, we thank you that you have opened our eyes to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, as I stand before these people and I prepare to proclaim the word to them, I pray, dear Lord, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. I pray, dear Lord, that you would fill me with compassion for the people, Lord, that my heart would break for them as I preach to them. I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with zeal and enthusiasm for you and for your word. I pray, dear God, that I would preach not, Lord, in my own strength, nor would I rely upon myself, but Lord, I pray that I would rely upon your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with your spirit now, Lord, that you would fill me with power. Father, I pray for each person that is listening to the word right now. Lord, I pray that you would open their minds, that they might have an attentiveness to the word, that they might be interested in the things that are being said. Lord, I pray that you would soften every heart, that we might be more inclined to love Jesus Christ and to do what the word says this day. And Father, I pray if there would be any in our midst here today that do not know you, I pray, Lord, that by your good sovereign grace that you would open their hearts, that they might see the gospel today for the first time and understand it and to come to Christ and embrace him. And so, Lord, whatever is to be accomplished in this message today, Lord, it will come about through the power of your Holy Spirit. We are dependent upon you, Lord. And now, Lord, please do what you will to glorify yourself and to edify your people as the word is proclaimed this day. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If I could this morning, let me tell you three very unrelated stories about my barber, okay? The first one is very simple, and you can see, and you could see better if you were standing above me that this is true, and that is, suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be, that the hair that I have, I'm kind of just moving it around, pretending to cover my head, but... I am starting to lose my hair. And every once in a while as I'm having my hair cut and I see the barber in the mirror going to work and as he's cutting the hair, I have to say to him, 
take it easy, stop, leave something there so that I can at least pretend that I have hair to move it around. Uh, the reason that that is true is because we, as people who are fallen, living in a fallen world, are in need of restoration. We have houses that need painting, we have bodies that get sick, we have relationships that fall apart, uh, we have heads that eventually go bald, and that is the case. And so that is one story about my barber. Let me tell you another story about my barber. And that is that this past week I was at a funeral, and as I was there, there was a young man that walked up to me. Now he is a seminary student, he goes to seminary in Philadelphia, and he said, oh, Pastor Moore, it's good to see you. He said, I have a story for you. I said, speak on. He said, uh, a few weeks ago, I was getting my hair cut. I said, where do you get your hair cut? He said, well, I get my hair cut at Steve's. I said, well, that's where I get my hair cut. I said, well, which one of the barbers there is your barber? He said, my barber is Yuri. I said, well, that is my barber as well. He said, well, I went in to get my hair cut, and it was on Good Friday, and as I was preparing to get my hair cut, I was sitting there, and as Yuri was cutting the head of the person that was next, in, that was in front of me in line, I heard the person sharing the gospel with Yuri. Now, Yuri is, is, is Jewish, uh, he is, he's not a Christian, and so the person was sharing the gospel, and he said, as I listened to this gospel presentation, it was a very good gospel presentation. And then as I listened even closer, I discovered that it was a great gospel presentation, that the person that was sharing was very, very solid. And so after he got out of the chair, and before I got in the chair, I shook hands with him, and I introduced myself to him, and I asked him his name, and he told me that his name was Matthew Shores and that he knew you. And so, now here, here that, is, that is good, first of all, to know that Matthew Shores shares a gospel which is good. But also, what are the chances that my friend, who is the seminary student, is going to be at the barber shop at the exact time listening? That is, uh, that's more than coincidental, isn't it? Okay. Now, for a completely unrelated story about my barber... A few months ago, same barber, same barber shop. I'm sitting in the chair, and my barber, who, as I said, who is Jewish, said, do you know the meaning of the word kosher? And I said, I think I know the meaning of the word kosher, but why don't you explain it to me? And he said, well, I'll explain it to you in this way. There's a story of a king who had a kingdom, and a traveling philosopher came into his kingdom, and was preaching a message. And the message was this. It's all for good. It's all for good. And so when things were going wrong in his kingdom, he would say to the people, it's all for good. It's all for good. And the king liked that because it created a positive atmosphere among the people. And so he made this philosopher his friend. But it turns out that one day he was out on a hunting expedition with the philosopher and the king, quite by mistake, shot off a part of his finger. And the philosopher said, it's all for good, it's all for good. The king was furious and put him into prison. Fade in, fade out, a little bit later, the king went out on another hunting expedition and this time he ran into a band of cannibals. And as the cannibals were preparing to eat everyone that was there, they discovered that the king had one of his digits missing and so they said, we cannot eat this man. He's not kosher. And they let him go. And they let him, and they let him return. And as he was walking back to the village, he thought within himself, 
I am so sorry that I put this man into prison, for he is right. It's all for good. It's all for good. And as he was releasing the man from prison, he said, I am so sorry that I arrested you, for you are right. If I had not shot off my finger, then I too would be dead, and I'm sorry you were put into prison. And the philosopher said, I don't mind being in prison. It's all for good. It's all for good. And the king said, how is it all for good that you were put into prison? And the man said, if I wasn't in prison, I would be with you on the hunting expedition and they would have eaten me because I'm kosher. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles, please. I will try to work that into my sermon somehow. Turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 8. Now this is a story about Elisha, the prophet Elisha. He was the most prolific miracle worker in the Old Testament. Here's what it says in 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 1. Now Elisha said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, arise and depart with your household and sojourn or travel wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourn or temporarily traveled in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Because what I guess had happened while she was gone, someone had confiscated her house and someone had taken over her land. Probably it was the government, seeing as how she's going to the king to have it restored. So that's what has happened here. Now, in a completely, seemingly unrelated story, beginning in verse 4, it says... Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me the great things that Elisha has done. And while, hold on to that word, W-H-I-L-E, while or as, A-S, while or as, while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealed to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. What do we have here? We have God giving a warning. And this is what the Lord is like. He gives warnings to his people. We see it in the book of Genesis when God said to Noah, build an ark for the saving of your house. We saw that illustration being built in front of the people. But no one listened to Noah, the preacher of righteousness, but the word was there. The warning was there. We see God later in the book of Genesis saying to Lot and his family, leave Sodom. No one would listen. But 
but the warning was there. We see the Lord Jesus Christ on the Olivet Discourse saying to his disciples, the day will come when armies will surround Jerusalem and it will be destroyed. And in AD 70, 1.1 million Jews were destroyed. The warning was there. And even today, God is gracious to every person that is here today and that you are receiving now a warning. And the warning is this, it is appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. We are sinners, and we have violated the law of God. There is none that is righteous, no, not one. We do not stand in and of ourselves in a good or in a right standing with God. But God is loving, and God is merciful. And God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin, to live in place of sinners, to die for sinners, to be raised, and now to live as Savior. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me... Will, I will in no wise cast out, and whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. There is a day coming for all of you when you will be in the judgment. This is your warning. You can escape that judgment. You can escape damnation by going to the only means of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. He is our only salvation, for there is salvation in none other, for there is one name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Here is your warning. And the woman received a warning, a warning from Elisha saying, you need to get out of here because there's going to be a famine. Now, let's think about this famine. First of all, the reason for the famine. She was one of the covenant people of God. She was living in Israel. And God had made covenant promises to his people, Israel, before they went in to possess the land. And he said to them, if you will live in obedience, one of the blessings that will be yours as a nation is that the heavens will give rain and the earth will produce fruit and you will have food in abundance. But if you break my law, one of the curses that will come upon you is the curse of drought. And it's very simple. They were living in an agrarian society. If it stops raining, then things stop growing. If things stop growing, people stop eating. If people stop eating, then they start dying. And this drought, which had come upon the people, was to be for seven years. That is a lengthy drought for an agrarian society. Please consider that in the previous book of the Bible, which is 1 Kings, in chapter 17, God said through the prophet Elijah, not Elisha, Elijah, that there is neither going to be rain nor dew on the earth except by my word. And that lasted for three and a half years. And we know that that drought was so severe that people were dying right and left. Now, the people had not received um, the word of the Lord. They had rebelled against him. They had gone back into their idolatry. And now there is a drought which is coming, which is twice as long. And so she could not withstand that. No one could. And so as a good warning to her, God says through Elisha, get up and leave and move. And so she gets up, she leaves, and she moves for seven years and goes into the land of the Philistines. Now at this point, the woman's husband is probably dead. Oh, who is this woman, by the way? Well, this is not the first time that we have been introduced to her. Uh, she was introduced to us earlier in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 4. She's known as the Shunammite woman uh, simply because she's from a place called Shunam. While we met her earlier, uh, here are some things you need to know about her. First of all, she was a good woman, she was a godly woman, and she was a woman who was very hospitable. Uh, here's why I say that. 
She knew that the prophet Elisha would be traveling through from time to time, and as he would be traveling through, she said to her husband, let's provide some hospitality for him. And the hospitality came to the point where they built a room on the top of their house so that Elisha and his assistant, Gehazi, would have a place where, when they were passing through Shunem, they could stay with a bed and a chair and a table. And so she provided this for him, and he wanted to know to the woman, what is it that I can do for you? And the woman said, you can't do anything for me. I have everything I need. I'm wealthy. I, and he said, well, would you like me to speak to the king? I don't need you to do that. Would you like me to speak to the captain of the army? No, I'm living at peace. You don't, there's, there's nothing that I need. I'm very content. And then Elisha's servant made an observation. He said, I know something that this woman needs that she doesn't have. She doesn't have a child, and her husband is very old. And so Elisha said, by the word of the Lord, next year at this time, when I come back, you will have a child. And true to the word of God, a year later, when he came back, there was a little boy. And the little boy grew up. And one day the little boy was out in the field with his father, and his head began to hurt. And he said, my head, my head. And he walked into the house, or was carried into the house where his mother was, and there suddenly, instantly, he died in his mother's arms. What is she to do? Elisha was nowhere to be found. He was about 16 miles away in, in, at Mount Carmel. And so she took the little boy and she walked up the steps to the room of the prophet's chamber and she laid the little boy on the bed. Then she got one of her servants and she made the journey very quickly to get Elisha. Long story short, and I won't go through all the details, after Elisha came back, he went into the room with the boy, laid himself on top of the boy, prayed for the boy. The boy began to get warm. He got up and he walked around and prayed some more, got on top of the boy again, and the boy, who had been dead, came back to life, sat up and sneezed. Can you believe that? Yes, he was brought back to life, and the boy was presented to his mother. That is the same woman that we are talking about here. But now, things are not going so well for the woman. Probably at this point, her husband is dead. He was an older man at that time, and now at least seven years have passed. She has left, and when she comes back, she no longer has a house. She no longer has an income. She no longer has a farm. Everything has been taken. It's like my hair. It's leaving. It's gone. And now as she comes back, she needs what all of us need, and that is restoration. But we need restoration in the here and now, but we need restoration in our relationship with God. Restoration was needed. That's the place the woman found herself. And so she said, I am going to go to the king I'm going to ask him that my land and my home be given back to me. Now, in a seemingly unrelated story, in verse 4, something happens which I cannot explain. And that is that the king, his name is Jehoram, he is a wicked king, he does not love the Lord, he led the people into sin, he was not a good and a godly king, but for some reason... He wants to know about the miracles of Elisha. 
And Elisha, who's traveling all the time, isn't there to tell about these miracles. And so, who better to know about the miracles of Elisha than this man, Gehazi? Now, who was Gehazi? Gehazi had previously been the assistant to Elisha. This man, Gehazi, uh, appeared to be a believer, but he really was not. In fact, he was a false believer. And he showed this by his greed. He tried to extort money from the Syrian general, whose name was Naaman. And as a result, he was fired from his job, and he was cursed with leprosy. And so, as he's talking to the king, I'm sure that they aren't shaking hands, or they don't have their arms around one another, seeing as how Gehazi is a leper. Probably he is at a distance from the king. But the king asks a question, he says, Could you tell me, Gehazi, please, everything about this man, Elisha? I want to know his miracles. And I don't have time this morning to tell you in detail even what we have recorded in the book of 2 Kings concerning the miracles of Elisha. But I'll tell you a few of them. Gehazi could have begun his conversation by saying, uh, King, he was there. He was there when Elijah was taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. And as his mantle fell, or as his cloak fell, it was Elisha that caught it, and as he struck the waters of the river Jordan, he walked across on dry ground. And then when he got to the other side, came, he was there in the city of Jericho, and while he was there, the water was not fit to drink. He put salt into the water, and the water was healed. From there, he began to walk up toward Bethel, and as he was walking toward Bethel, there were a group of young people that were insulting him because of his bald head, and he called by the power of the Lord two she-bears to come out of the woods, and they mauled 42 young people to death. King, you remember yourself how you made a journey with some other kings to attack Moab, and as you were out in the middle of the wilderness for seven days with no water, ready to die, it was Elisha that prayed, and water came, not from clouds, not from a storm, but water just miraculously came, which supplied beverage for you and your armies and for your animals, and you were able to have the victory over the Moabites. And, and King, you, you, you should have been there, I saw it with my own eyes, when there was this woman who was a widow, who was one of the, 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 the brides of the sons of the prophets, and she and her two sons were about to die. And King, I'm telling you, this man, Elisha, told her to go out and to gather as many vessels as she could and to bring them into her house. And when the vessels had been brought into her house, over and over and over again, the vessels were filled and she was able to have life restored. King, some of the miracles have been big, some of them have been little. One of them, for example, is that we were out by the water one day and we were cutting down a tree and one of the men who had borrowed an axe, an iron axe head, that iron axe head fell into the river Jordan. The man was frantic because it was a borrowed axe and king, I'm telling you, I saw it with my own eyes, that axe head floated to the surface. And king, there was another time when there was a pot of stew and some idiot 
put poisonous leaves in there inadvertently, and the, the whole pot of stew was unedible, and Elisha put flour into it, and it became edible. And there was another time came when the sons of the prophets came together, and there was not enough bread, and Elisha multiplied the bread. And came, there was another time when there was a Syrian general by the name of Naaman, and he came to be healed of his leprosy, and he was told to go and dip in the river Jordan, and he did and his leprosy was healed. In fact, the reason I know about that so well, King, is that's the reason why I'm a leper today. King, I can tell you anything you want to know about this man, Elisha, and his prophets. But King, the greatest miracle, the greatest miracle that I have ever seen, and I saw it with my own eyes, is that there was a boy. And King, I was in that room with that boy. That boy wasn't wounded. That boy wasn't injured. He was dead. He was blue. He was purple. He was cold. He was stiff. He had been dead. And King, I'm telling you, this man, Elisha, got on top of him and prayed for him, and he was brought back to life. And he's, as he's telling that story, look please at verse, verse number 5. Now, I don't know what version of the Bible you're reading. If you're reading the King James Version, it will be the word as, A-S. If you're reading the ESV, it will be the word while, W-H-I-L-E. But take note of this, because this is very significant. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored life, uh, the dead to life, behold, paint the picture in your mind, at that same moment, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king. In other words, there is a confluence, there is a convergence. It, it, it wasn't five minutes before, it wasn't five minutes after, it wasn't that same day. It was at the exact same moment when the story was being told about the boy who had been raised to life that the woman walked in. And as she makes her appeal to the king, interrupting what Gehazi is saying, the king then turns his attention to the woman, asks a few questions, I guess to cooperate and to see if what Gehazi has said is true. Once he is convinced that it's true, he realizes that the hand of God is upon this woman. He's a wicked king. He doesn't have any love for God at all. But he says to the woman, Ma'am, not only will your house be restored and your land be restored, but every bit of produce that is grown on that land from the time you left till now will be restored to you. Restoration. Restoration. It's what we need. Like I need a good wig, or like you need healing in your body, or like we need our marriages to be mended together, or like we need our finances to be fixed, or we need healing from some kind of uh, affliction that's in our body, or whether we need our finances to be restored, or whether we need our relationship with God to be restored. We, as fallen people living in a fallen world, are in constant need of restoration, and this woman received that restoration then and there from the king. And so we ask the question, how did this restoration come about? Three ways. Number one, it came about through providence. Now what is providence? Providence, you say, is the capital of Rhode Island. Well, <laughs> true, it's the capital of Rhode Island. But here's what providence means. It means that God is in charge of everything, that he is sovereign, that he limits, that he orders, and that he controls, 
and he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Whatever happens does not happen by chance. Whatever happens, happens by design, and God is the one that designs it. Let me ask you, how many of you are good at mathematics? You don't have to be, you don't have to be modest. You're, you're, you would consider yourself to be fairly good at math. Anyone here? I'm not going to ask you a math question. But anyone say, yes, I'm pretty good at math. One person, isn't anyone good at math? Okay. I would like you to think about the mathematical odds. What are the mathematical odds that a woman would leave for seven years and that her return to speak to the king would come at the exact same moment when a story about her was being told by this unsaved assistant to the prophet to this unsaved king? What are the chances? I mean, five minutes earlier, five minutes later, one day earlier, one day later, it's, it's meaningless. But what are the chances that at the exact moment when the haste is saying, King, I saw it myself, the boy was dead, and he did. There's the boy right there. <laughs> what are the chances that that would come together at that time? One in a, one in a hundred? One in a million? One, one in a billion? What are the chances that they would come together at that exact point? Here's your answer. The mathematical odds of that happening are so great that we could not calculate them. You would not want to take those odds to Atlantic City. <laughs> the, the odds are almost, it would be like the Mets winning the World Series. That's how the odds are. And I'm a Mets fan. Let me tell you something. The odds of that happening are 100% if God is the one that is designing it. For she did not walk into the presence of the king randomly. He was not telling that story randomly. The king did not ask for the stories of the miracles to be told randomly. It was all by design. And everything that happens in the universe is by design. That's why we, as Christians, take great comfort in Romans 8.28 that says that we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him to those who are the called according to his purpose. When you walk down the street and you see a $20 bill lying on the sidewalk, you say, amen, I am in the right place at the right time. God has designed this and it is a good thing. But what about, and I'm speaking seriously, what about when you receive the call from the doctor and the doctor says, I'm sorry. The report has come back and it has metastasized. What about when you get the report that your spouse has committed adultery? What about when a depression overtakes you such that you cannot lift your head off the pillow? Are those things also part of God's plan? Is he still sovereign? Is he still in control? I would say amen. Yes, he is in control. He limits, he orders, and he controls all things. Now that concerns you where you are immediately today. It is not by chance 
that I am preaching this sermon today. It is not by chance that you are where you are listening to this sermon today. We are all here by a divine appointment. We did not make that appointment, but God made that appointment. But more than that, where you are in life right now, not sitting in this church, but where you are in life right now, who you are married to or who you are not married to, the health that you have in your body or the sickness that you have in your body, the job that you have or the job that you don't have, it is all by the design of God. Providence. And we take comfort in that. There's another way in which this woman had restoration brought to her. This almost seems contradictory. But the way that restoration came to her was through pain. Through pain. Now, what is the greatest pain this woman ever experienced? Was it not the loss of her son? I am so glad today that I stand in front of you and that I have no experiential knowledge of what it's like to lose a child. But as a pastor, I have had to deal with people in my congregations who have lost children. Perhaps there could be a greater pain, but I don't have the capability of imagining it. This woman did not ask for a son, but a son was given to her. And when she goes to Elisha and she says, why did you do this to me? I didn't ask for a son, and now he's been taken away from me. Can you imagine how she felt grief and remorse and sadness and agony and sorrow every step of that 16-mile journey to meet the prophet? Her little boy, her little precious boy, probably five, six, seven years old, is now dead, and this is the greatest pain she ever experienced. What pain? But... If the boy had not been dead, the boy would not have been raised to life. And if the boy had not been raised to life, when she is making her case before the king, the king probably is going to say to her, how dare you come in and interrupt my meeting? Who are you? Restore. Restore your land? Ma'am, we just came through a seven-year famine. Things are tough all over. There's no reason why I should listen to you. But he did listen to her. The reason he listened to her was because she had a son that was alive there and implied in him being back to life was that he was at one time dead. So, I'm not smart enough to look at all of the pain that you've gone through in your life and say, I can tell you why this happened and what it led to. But what I can tell you is we serve a sovereign God who allows nothing to happen randomly, nothing to happen by chance. Everything happens by design, including, and might I say even sometimes, especially the pain which we have to endure. Let me give you two illustrations of that. Number one is Joseph. Joseph is hated by his brothers. They're jealous of him. So they sell him into slavery. He gets sold into the house of Potiphar. He gets accused of rape something he did not do. He gets put in prison. There he interprets the dream of the cupbearer and there he is eventually put in the presence of Pharaoh. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. He rises to power, saves the lives of the Egyptians and saves the lives of his entire family. 
Now, if you look at any isolated portion of this story, let's just say when he is in prison for two years, forgotten, you could look at that and say, what is the purpose of this? But if you look at you get in the helicopter and you back off from the story and you look at it in the grand scheme, think about it. If he's not hated by his brothers, then he isn't sold into slavery. If he's not sold into slavery, he doesn't need Potiphar, he doesn't need Potiphar, he doesn't need Potiphar's wife. He doesn't need Potiphar's wife, he doesn't get accused of rape. If he doesn't get accused of rape, he doesn't go to prison. If he doesn't go to prison, then he doesn't meet the cupbearer. If he doesn't meet the cupbearer, then he doesn't meet Pharaoh. If he doesn't meet Pharaoh, then he doesn't interpret Pharaoh's dream. If he doesn't interpret Pharaoh's dream, then Egypt perishes in the famine, but more importantly, his family perishes in the famine, and if his pe family perishes in the famine, his brother Judah perishes in the famine, and if Judah dies, then there is no King David, and if there is no King David, then there is no King David's greater son, and if there is no King David's greater son, Jesus Christ, we are in our sins, I'm going to hell, and so are you. You see, the pain led eventually to the salvation of many. One other illustration, and I think you know where I'm going with this. Never has greater pain been experienced than that of the eternal Son of God who on Mount Calvary endured such pain we cannot describe. There where he had had his back flogged, where he had a crown of thorns driven into his skull, where he had his hands and his feet nailed to a cross. There, where he endured the spiritual agony of pollution, he who knew no sin became sin. He is, upon that cross, as vile as any child molester or rapist that ever lived. Jesus Christ, the pure Lamb of God, takes upon himself the sins of God's people, and God, in his holiness and in his wrath, looks out of heaven at his Son, and as it says in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to make his soul an offering for sin. Greater pain hath no man ever known than Jesus Christ upon Mount Calvary. But yet, if he doesn't go through that pain and cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If God doesn't forsake him upon that cross, then God forsakes me, for he bore our sins in his body upon the tree. Jesus died for our sins and endured great pain, but it was through that pain that we eventually will be saved, for he took our pain upon himself. So this woman, enduring the pain of her lost son, she never would have dreamed that when that boy died that that would eventually lead to the restoration of her land. But there was one more thing. And that is that this woman endured great, great, great rest. She enjoyed great, great, great restitution through power. Not just providence, not just pain, but power. Why was the king willing to listen to the testimony of Gehazi and to grant the plea of the woman? Not because the woman was hospitable and built a room for the prophet. And not because the woman came in and made an earnest plea. And not because the woman had a deed in her hand for the land. And not because the woman was sorrowful and not because she was bold. No. What caused him, an unjust king, to listen to her plea was the evidence that stood beside her, and that was a risen son. The power of God to raise the dead. And why is it that a sinner like me 
can go before God and be granted restoration. I'm not talking about my hair growing back. I'm talking about restoration. I'm talking about my sins being forgiven. I'm talking about coming into a right relationship with Him. I'm talking about me, His enemy, me, a sinner, me who spit upon His law, me who cursed His name, me who wanted nothing to do with Him. And as I was running my hellbound race, how is it that someone like me can be restored into a relationship with a God who is holy? And you sang it, and you sang it, and you sang it this morning. You are holy. You are holy. You are holy. A God who is holy, who is of pure eyes and to behold evil. How is it that we can be brought into a right relationship with Him? It is not through our works. For by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in His sight. No, the reason that I can make my plea before God and say, please restore to me that which was lost in Adam, that which was lost through my sin, is because at my side, is a risen Son, Jesus Christ the Righteous One, who not only died for me, but rose for me, and who lives for me now, and who ever lives to make intercession for me, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Majesty on high, ever living to plead for me. My brethren, I write these things to you that you do not sin. But if anybody does sin, please know that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, whoever lives to plead for us. And so I say, before the throne of God above, I have a pure and a holy and a righteous plea. The great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. And when Satan tempts me to despair and he tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Our restoration, our pardon, everything that we need is in that risen Son, Jesus Christ. And because he lives, we too shall be lived. You don't get restored to God because you are sincere. You don't get to God because you are sorry. You don't get to God because of your works. You get there because of the work of the risen Son of God. It is through His power. It is through providence. There is no such thing as luck. It is through pain that Jesus Christ died on our behalf. It is through power Jesus Christ is risen and because He lives we shall live as well. And so I say to you today, if you are in need of restoration, if you walked into this room and you're not saved, you're not born again, call upon the Lord. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Today is the day of salvation. You have a voice which can reach the throne of God because there is one who stands in your behalf. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Go to God through Christ. If you're here today and you are saved, your hair is going to start falling out. <laughs> and other things are going to start happening. Job put it this way, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. This is not our home. You can do everything you want to bring restoration. You can get a facelift. You can dye your hair. You can go to the gym. You can put on lots of makeup, but at the end of the day, you're fighting a losing battle. They're going to put you in a casket, and they're going to put me in a casket. 
that's appointed unto men wants to die. But we can take hope in the midst of that pain that God is sovereign and that that pain is for a purpose and that ultimately we will be without pain because of the risen Christ, Jesus Christ, who lives for us today. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this story, this simple story of this woman who had everything restored to her. Lord, we look forward to the day when all that was lost in Adam will be restored to us because of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to look to that place and to look to no other place, to look to Christ and Christ alone. Father, please, please cause your people, even in the midst of their pain today, to trust you. Lord, cause us now to, even as we sang this morning, have all of our hope in you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.